friends out there on the internet, out there in podcast land with your headphones in your ears. I'm Chase Jarvis, and it's my job to welcome you today to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. I'm happy that you're listening. Thanks so much for tuning in. You know the show. This is where I sit down with the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to unpack actionable insights with the goal of helping you live your dreams. My guest today is Senator Cory Booker. Senator Booker is one of the most compelling and dynamic voices in American politics today. And here's the thing. We don't actually talk in this interview about politics. For those of you, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. This should be insight into how creativity has a role, how entrepreneurship has a role in everything that we do. Corey is the former mayor of Newark, New Jersey. He's the subject of a 2005 documentary called Street Fight, chronicles his 2002 bid for mayor, where all kinds of stuff happens. Uh, You have to see the film. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It did lose that nomination. We talk a little bit about that in the course of the interview. But this guy is so engaged on the topic of education, something that's near to me, so engaged on the topic of entrepreneurship, how to build community and help it. He's also an incredibly candid and open human who is willing to share so many things that those in his position typically wouldn't or haven't. When you think of creative professions, I know that politics would probably be at the bottom of that list for most, and yet he's proof, living proof, and you can hear it in his voice, you can see it in his actions, that that assumption is false, that maybe even our, our very definition of creativity must be reconsidered to make sure to include work like this. He's just full of insights that can, can uh, that have been takeaways for me personally uh, and can be applied to any creator and entrepreneur or anybody with the goal of pursuing a particular passion and making it their career, which Corey did. A couple other highlights. Senator Booker is so good at getting eyeballs on the causes that he advocates for. There's so much for us to take away from that. Um, he gets into a little bit of his strategy around this. For example, that you, you may have heard about his pothole fixing campaign during his campaign of uh, his running for mayor. He used social in a way I've never seen anyone do it, where you could tweet a picture of a pothole and the city of Newark would have it fixed sometimes within hours. And if that doesn't make you have a different approach or belief about what government is capable of, I watched him transform uh, the way that Newark thought about that. I thought it was an incredibly powerful story. He talks really openly about the times that he's failed. Uh, we rarely hear folks in his position of authority talk about failure, or if they do, it's sort of like this, uh, what Brene Brown calls gold-plated grit. They tell this cute little story and then they move on. Corey goes deep about his learning experiences. Uh, one example is he was uh, wildly touted as a high school football star. He's a two, you know, offense and defense All-American. Ended up playing at Stanford only to ride the bench. You know, for you sports fanatics out there or for anyone who's played on a team and then you got there with a ton of expectations and failed. It's a really beautiful story there. And then I've talked a lot about the critical importance of controlling your internal state, the internal state of mind, your internal dialogue as a precursor for success. I've personally experienced, you know, being on both sides of that coin. I know it's true. It's not just something I think is a nice to have. And Senator Booker does such an eloquent job of getting into that with some depth, with I was really inspired by, including a handful of specifics on the exact tactics that he uses to take control of those crazy moments where we all sort of <laughs> get off the rails or fear or, or excuse me, feel the, the moment slipping away from us. Corey does a great job of helping us 
realize how we can come back into control in those moments. Uh, I want to keep giving you highlights, but I really want to just get the hell out of the way and let you listen to my conversation with Senator Cory Booker. Before we do, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my friends at FreshBooks. FreshBooks are a cloud-based accounting software and it's designed specifically for you and me. That's right, for freelancers, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and the self-employed. Very stoked to have these guys on board. If you want to get your accounting on Rails, then I encourage you to check out FreshBooks. Sign up for a free trial at freshbooks.com slash chase. That's one sponsor. Today, we have another one. This show is also brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. Pleasure to have you. You say the senator. The senator. There's a hundred of them. Come on. But you're the senator, I'm Cory the Booker. I'm junior of the hundred senators. Well, I mean, that's part of what makes you great is your humility. But uh, I'm going to take the folks who are tuning in right now. I'm going to take them back to the first meeting that we had in, in January. Uh, I was there in Washington, D.C., working with a couple of influencers. I chair an influencer committee that was affiliated with the White House and working on pushing uh, social agendas, agendas around education. Um, and you joined us for dinner, and you stood up and gave a very passionate ad hoc speech. Um, it was incredibly moving to me, and it wasn't moving just about the politics that you were advocating for. It was moving in the fact that you are, without a doubt, the most creative and entrepreneurial-minded uh, person in government that I'd ever come around. So. To me, that's, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background, sure. and maybe we can march a, a, a short arc to get to today, but how did you get that? What was the world that you grew up in to be so um, entrepreneurially minded and creative about your approach to your job? Well, the, the beautiful thing about America is we, all, we are this incredible mixture of lots of different cultures, and that you know, immigrant groups, the Irish, uh, just the endurance, surviving, finding ways to move ahead and move American society with them, mm -hmm. incredible. You have uh, uh, other cultures, but I grew up in an African-American family, and so, so much of the stories I heard growing up was outrageous creativity against insurmountable odds. Yeah. And so if you think about you know, uh, Birmingham in 1963, where Martin Luther King is in prison, and Wright's probably one of the greatest uh, um, uh, pieces of American literature, uh, the letters Incredible. in the Birmingham jail, uh, where he tells the truth of us, all of us spiritually. We may be different, minor parts of our genetics that makes us different races, but he says, look, we're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a common garment of destiny, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Oh, the poetry there, that is so beautiful. He, he's oh, amazing. And, but the interesting thing here is he comes out of prison yeah. And he's failing in Birmingham. He can't get people to organize. And it was two creatives, Dorothea Cotton and James Bevel, that go up to him and say, you're gonna have to try a different strategy. And they literally get him to do something, pull a rabbit out of a hat, which was their idea, which was, hey, we can't get adults to organize. You've been telling us we can't organize children. 
we're going to organize children. And I think it was Taylor Branch in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, or, or it might have been uh, Stephen Oates, that calls the chapter, this chapter in their book is called The Children's Miracle. Because when you suddenly have these kids, a thousand of them gather in a church to creatively protest against Bull Connor, who was, when it comes to white supremacy, was sort of like straight out of central casting. Yeah. And um, they ended up creating such a spectacle, fire hoses on these kids, eventually dogs, that it woke this country. And you had black folks, white folks, Asian folks, people, all, people sitting in Iowa eating their meal and watching this on their TV. It so shook their consciousness. Yeah. That they, that they came down. Uh, and that's what's the power of the civil rights movement, whether it's John Lewis and marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That's so inspirational, your work with them recently. Sorry, I keep Yeah, going. no, but yeah. It's, it's, to me, it's so creative. It's, it's like, look, we are facing implacable walls of resistance. Yeah. How, do you, how, do, like, how did Gandhi, this small little bald <laughs> man, you know, frail bald man, get the British Empire out of, it, it was creativity, is yeah. thinking, but it's also love. Yeah. It's how can we connect to the love, uh, and I think there is boundless reservoirs, it's the most powerful force in all of humanity. How can we unleash the power of love uh, that seems to be damned at this point? And, and so that's where I get a lot of my inspiration for. I was yeah. growing up in this household where my parents were like, look, this is not reality that you're living in. Yes. Uh, you know, my parents came from poverty, literally talk about creative protest. They were turned away from the town that I was living in. And they had to get a white couple to pose as them through this Fair Housing Council, this incredible group of black and white activists, wow. who sent out a test couple to see, indeed, that when my parents were told the house was test sold. Test humans. Test humans. Oh my God. <laughs> to see, so when my parents were told the house was sold, uh, the white couple would come after them and find out the house was still for sale. And the house my parents fell in love with, but they were told was taken off the market, the white couple found out that it wasn't, put a bid on the house, the bid was accepted. And on the day of the closing, my father and this volunteer lawyer named Marty Friedman show up. And the, the lawyer was, the real estate agent was so angry, he punches my dad's lawyer, sticks a dog on my dad. And the, I always joke that the, every time my dad would tell the story, the dog would get bigger. It's like the fish story. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, exactly. story. But that's, that was, that's the tumult. So now imagine me, 18 years later, I'm a high school senior, all-American high school football player. I always joke that I got into Stanford because of my 4.0, 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 <laughs> receiving yards. Um, but I, you know, I walk around my house with teenage swagger, and my dad would be like, boy, don't, don't walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base. And you've got to understand that these blessings that you have, and any of us that can pronounce those four words, which only like 4.5% of humanity can say, I am an American. And the blessings that come with that, they come with obligations. And my parents said, look, you've got to keep fighting in this country. And so the instruction that I always took for when I started finally uh, working uh, my first sort of professional job as a lawyer fighting against slumlords in Newark with these amazing tenant leaders, um, the first sort of uh, draw that I had in terms of uh, informing me on what practices to use was this incredible civil rights movement uh, where, where people of all different backgrounds came together to advance our nation uh, towards higher principles of love. Beautiful background. My um, I talk on this show a lot about creativity with a small c, which is sort of photography, design, um, building businesses, entrepreneurship. But there's creativity with a capital C, which is that creativity uh, is going to underpin the solution to every problem we will ever know. The fact that a billion people go without access to clean drinking water, and I, in my speeches all over the world, I use the civil rights movement as as an understanding of what capital C looks like. Yeah. And to me, that's one of the reasons I've wanted you on the show um, since before we met in January, 
is I think your solution or your mechanisms for um, bringing about change, for bringing about awareness, for um, again, not just the political agenda, but in, in connecting with people, wildly different than any I'd ever seen. Um, let's, if we can for a second, let's talk about before we go but to can I just that. Yeah, you, I want to this is your show. No, this is our show. But I think what you're, I mean, look, I mean, if I'm a person of faith and I, I love, so I've studied religions because I just love conceptions of the divine and who knows who's got it right, but right. Um, there's this idea that God was a creator and made us in their own image. Therefore, what is our most godly calling is to be creative. Yes. And, and so I, th th there, there is this ability for artists, whether it's, again, in, in American traditions, from James Baldwin uh, uh, to Langston Hughes, that, that just in their artistry touch people. Why is it that uh, I can tear up as soon as I hear bagpipes playing at a, at a, at a, in, in Newark um, from a different tradition or that you have people in Ireland listening to blues. I mean, this connects humanity. And, and, and the stories, you say you use the civil rights movement. I literally just about a week ago was in eastern Ukraine. Um, um, uh, I'm, in the, I'm in a basement area meeting with the people. Most Americans don't understand that we are in this existential fight right now, I think, against the Russians. They have attacked Ukraine. There's a line of contact. They invaded the Donbass region. And people are dying. We actually lost an American, Joseph Stone, tragically trying to enforce peace accords, the Minsk Accords there. His, his car hit a landmine. So you have this kinetic battle going on. And I'm sitting in this basement of with military leaders. Some have been wounded. Some have been captured and then released in the basement of this building, who all crowd in to see a junior senator from New Jersey, because most Americans don't understand what we are giving to the planet Earth in terms of hope. Yeah. I mean, these guys literally had to go back and forth on bicycles to communicate amongst troops, um, because the, the Russians were so good at jamming their communications, until Americans gave them this Harris radio made in Clifton, New Jersey. Um, the, the, our technology enabling them to, 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 to stay alive and to communicate. So I say all that to say, when I'm meeting with these leaders who are literally uh, on this forefront of this hybrid war that the Russians are doing, which includes hacking and propaganda, as well as this kinetic war, the stories that most uh, touch them, uh, that I could draw from, was telling them stories about the civil rights movement, about this larger fight. And I, I, I told these uh, young leaders, uh, when, the, when the revolution happened in Ukraine and they threw out their, the leader when they, when they turned their back on, on the West, on the EU, and there was this uh, unbelievable uh, demonstration in the Maidan, the, the main area, a new generation of leaders. So you, you sit down with these folks who are practically millennials now in parliamentary positions. And I just looked at them, I said, look, you guys are in this moment where it's gonna be your creativity to envision stuff that's not there, yeah. to see things that other people can't experience yet. Your ability to have that compelling vision is, is, gonna, is gonna drive your country forward. And then I told them stories about people experiencing all types of bigotry and oppression, violence, but yet they still believed in the hope of democracy, which is what they're, what's driving them on. So this is not a, this is, these are human chords yeah. that are so powerful. And we have an obligation, as a great poet said, and we all watch Dead Poet Society, to contribute a verse to this larger, larger movement. 
Well, that's a beautiful articulation of what I think is a, you know, the, a very large opportunity to put creativity at work. And I think as a, as a culture, we've largely repressed it. And it's, you know, the rise of the creator, uh, I think it's at an all-time high and rising. Um, and, you know, I'd like to touch base on education and the way we look at that, um, your employment of it. And before we go, I, I want to touch base on sports because yeah. I think, you know, you and I share that in common. I went to college on a soccer scholarship. But before we do, you, you told a story to me that night at dinner about using social, like in this case it was Twitter, when you were the just elected um, mayor of Newark right. to send a message, of, to creatively communicate with people around a message of hope surrounding like the potholes. Potholes not as fixing the potholes, like literally fixing the potholes, but potholes also as a metaphor of what was possible through communication coming together as, right. a, as a community. So tell, tell me that story about how you, like people were taking pictures of potholes. Yeah, I mean look, I, we were dealt a really bad hand when I became mayor, and the city was dealt a big hand. It was, we had a, I was mayor at a time that our country slipped into this, uh, the globe slipped into a recession, and our cities faced depression-like circumstances. And I want to get the people to believe that we were in a partnership, that I wasn't just a mayor and there was a community, but I want to believe that we could create a we government, you know, that we, could, we were in this together. So I decided to be the most accessible mayor I could ever possibly be. And so I used Twitter, actually, uh, to create a platform to say, hey, tweet me and I will respond yeah. and I will, I will show you that we are in this together. So people, as opposed to just driving past potholes and cursing, <laughs> somebody should do something <laughs> about this. We've all done that yes, Yeah. Um, Not just in Newark, but everywhere. Everywhere. But. And uh, they began to, you know, people began to take me up on it and they would uh, uh, take a picture of the pothole and tweet it at me and say, on the corner of here and here, there's a massive pothole. And I wanted to show them government responsiveness. So we would go out there and try to do it in a matter of hours. And so I, I would literally, I, and I, I had this response, I'd say, on it. That's all I would tweet to them. And then if we got it fixed, I'd often say done or I'd wait for them to say, oh my God, you fixed that pothole. And it just created this incredible uh, connection that I began to hold my staff more accountable because I would find out about potholes before my road crews, traffic lights out before my traffic department. It, it just became, it actually made the whole of our city better yeah. because we were all working to fix problems that we saw. And it's it's. Certainly there is the act of fixing the pothole, which is an improvement, but it sends this message of hope, of accountability, of reliability, of, um, it's, this, it's a similar thing to this, I think the study they did on, on graffiti on the trains here in New York, that when they could clean the trains within the same day of graffiti appearing on it, and the graffiti, the amount of graffiti, now I happen to be an advocate for graffiti in other circles, but this particular element, when they reduced that, and they could show that the people in the city cared, that there was a disproportionate amount of care that the people themselves put back into the system. Right. You feel like that's what happened? With yeah, the I mean, look, when we, there's something about when you take ownership of something um, that is, that is it's very empowering. And, and, and I think it, create, it changes the energy in a city. But you and I both, and I've listened to you enough to know that we know that about our lives. And I always tell people we have a choice to make in every moment of our life. It's to accept things as they are or take responsibility for changing them. And when you begin to get that kind of empowerment, yeah. because this life, we were talking before we were on camera, there's lots of things going on around the world and it can feel very disempowering, make yeah. you feel small. And I always tell people, never allow your inability to do everything to undermine your determination to do something, even if it's just one small act, and never underestimate how that one small act can resonate. Yes. And the, the, the great example of this, already on the, what we've talked about, is what did these folks who were marching in the 1960s and all this have anything to do with you and I in a different generation? Well, 
the, the lawyers that helped my family move into the house in Harrington Park, New Jersey, I had to track them down for my book uh, uh, because I had to fact check every story I was yeah, telling. I didn't want to have one of these moments. Yep. So I, I wanted to find out, you know, what was the size of the dog, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah, so I, I talked to the head lawyer who was organizing people to, to help people like my parents. And I said, well, why would you, a young guy just starting out, why would you get involved in this creative protest? And he goes, well, I remember the day. It was a Monday. And I goes, a Monday? He goes, yeah, it was a Monday because that Sunday I was at my house in New Jersey watching these marchers on a bridge in, 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 called the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It was Bloody Sunday when John Lewis got hit and everything. And it just so stunned me to think that those creative protesters in, in Birmingham, Alabama, instantaneously, their love and sacrifice changed the heart of a guy in New Jersey who then got involved. He said one of the case files he was handed was Carrie and Carolyn Booker, my parents, that literally then changed generations yet unborn. I would not be here right now if it wasn't for that chain of love that moved to space and time to affect my life. And so we underestimate what small acts, like I can't pick your headline from today. Yeah. You feel disempowered by it. Yeah. But maybe it's just one small thing I can do to make my city better. I can tell the mayor about this one pothole. And I've had friends of mine since then tell me stories about a lot on a street that everybody passed by with dirt and debris and deciding just to clean up a lot yeah. and how kids would come out and every, it changed the temperature. We found that out on murals, getting a, a local artist say, we're gonna paint the side of this building yeah. and, and how it changes the temperature. One small act of creative engagement can send ripples out that we don't even understand to make a difference. That's the power we have to change our world that we so often don't use because what Alice Walker said, the most common way we give up our power is not realizing we have it in the first place. That's a, I love that quote. I've heard you say that before. Yes. Uh, and is there something in particular with your DNA? Is it is it your upbringing? Was it you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go here to sports and sports played a huge role in for me in um, team building, knowing that you could do something if you got a bunch of like-minded people together and worked hard. There's a lot of discipline around that. It's not for everybody. It's not the answer. But I know you played football. You cited that earlier. You went to college on a, on a scholarship. And what role did sports or is there some other part of your familial DNA? That, that gave you the insight to think like well, this? Well, I, I, so I listen to you and I have a lot of respect for you. And um, you know, it t you and I both know, we're not, you, you said this yourself, like I was asking you about your morning routine and you're like, I don't always do it. You know, I know it's, I need to meditate every morning. I'm better when I do. I know I need to get sleep. But sometimes I sit up there eating you know, Doritos, watching TV, <laughs> too late. Yeah. So yeah. it takes work. But, but I think that it's having that aspiration in your heart. Yeah. Uh, to live your life some way and to know it's a struggle and know you're not going to be perfect. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, I just, on the way here, I passed by a McDonald's in my neighborhood and I love this McDonald's because it reminds me of a lesson that my driver, the guy who drives me around, a detect, retired detective, grew up in the projects. You know, we drove through the drive-thru, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I'm a vegan actually, so I'm embarrassed to like say that I was going into a McDonald's <laughs> drive-thru, you know, very embarrassing, but I'll never forget, that, you know, they hand us two large fries through the drive-thru window and I'm, these are succulent, like ambrosia. It's like I you know, sprinkled them with some illegal substance. And I'm so happy about these two fries, but there's a guy in the dumpster uh, right by us. And I say, hey man, you need some help. And that's how I think I'm wired. I think I'm, hey, I'm doing the right thing. And he goes, I don't need any help. He sort of waves me off. I go, man, is there something I can do for you? He goes, I'm just hungry. And so I painfully give him one of my two large fries, thinking I've done my good deed. But then he looks at me with anguish in his face and he goes, hey man, I need some socks, do you have any socks? And I'm thinking to myself, I don't carry extra socks in my car. And just as I'm sort of like telling him no, 
you know, Kevin, the, the guy's driving me, throws the car in park, reaches between his legs, takes off the socks he's wearing, hands them through the window. Now I'm three blocks from my house. If you're like me, I have tons of socks in my drawers. I don't even wear that my mother yep. gave me for some birthday <laughs> six years ago. But I just wasn't thinking creatively enough yeah. about how to help people. And so I, I don't know where I, I, how I am who I am. I just know that I'm an imperfect model for anybody. But I know the most important thing about what I do is that struggle. Yeah. And the more you fight, this is sports taught you and I, that the, the struggle is what's important. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, football was one of the best, sports period was one of the best gifts of my life because I just learned that the harder you work, the better you get. And I also learned this incredible lesson about like, if you really want to be good at something, you've got to be willing to give something up. And, and most often it's time. Like the best people that I saw were saying, okay, I'm going to give up spending that five hours that the average American does watching a TV, TV shows. Um, and I'm going to invest that in something. I'm going to, I'm going to dare to be different or weird. Or, um, and, and so for me, especially at Stanford, where I came in was a failure in my first year. As, as, and I, everybody thought I was going to be the freshman All-American. They thought they had their top. I was, a, I was the most overrated high school football player <laughs> ever in America. I was like a two-position high school All-American and on the same team as like Emmett Smith and the USA Today. That was that class coming out of high school. And wow. then I just sat the bench my first year and I had to re-engineer my body. And uh, I just, you know, this, that experience taught me that there's nothing I can't do if I'm willing to put in the time. And I went from having horrible bench, horrible squats to making the California all football strength team just because I learned that, if, that you, if you want the things that other people don't have, you've gotta be willing to do the things that other people don't do. And it was one of the best lessons uh, uh, sports could have ever given me, just that idea of, of sacrifice in order to, something in order to get what you really want. Uh, powerful story. My, my, my next question is, we're gonna go from sports to the what is often considered something very different, which is creativity. And that was a thing for me. I was an, uh, uh, a jock, Trapped in an artist's body, yeah. or an artist trapped in, in a jock's, jock's body. body. Yeah. yeah, and it was it was reconciling those two things. It was when you were the creative kid where I grew up, in very suburban, very white, middle, lower middle class uh, suburb of Seattle. Um, the creative kids were weird, and I didn't want to be weird, so I did the opposite. I was like, okay, well, what's easy and socially acceptable and fits in, and and you know, a girl will look at you. I'm like, okay, great, uh, football or yeah. soccer. Great, I'll do that. Now, did, was there any sort of pressure in your world? Did you, feel, um, the, you know, did you feel culture telling you what to do, what to be as a young man? Because um, for me, the, the folks who are listening, I found it, I come from relative privilege. I mean, all those things. I mean, I did have Adidas with four stripes. I had yeah. upside down Nikes. Right. My parents told me those are Nikes. And I was like, why do mine look different yeah. than the other ones? But relative privilege, and I felt that in order to find out who I was, I had to wait basically until I was a, a young adult. Did you feel pressure to be an athlete or did you feel pressure to be something that you maybe were or were not? God, that's a great question. I, I, I think all of us when we're teens, we feel ridiculous pressures that now in retrospect don't seem uh, like why were we stressing over things like that? But yeah. I think there's a de desire not to be different, right? Yeah. And you want to fit in. And, and the challenge I had, and now I see it as a gift, <laughs> is yeah. that I was very visibly different than everybody in my school because I was the only black kid. Uh, obviously, my brother and um, maybe a small group of minorities, but we were a very homogeneous town uh, in, in terms of just basic race, even though we had Jewish community in the town, Irish, Italian, but um, I was the black kid. And, and, and I think that that, 
uh, you know, it had some painful childhood, really painful childhood moments. Yeah. And, but it also taught me the bravery of being different. And I think often when you experience um, difficulties like that, especially at a young age, it could either make you mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, people who are yep. bullied often end up bullying, or it can make you more compassionate. And, and I always feel like my childhood of being that different kid made me, you know, when that new kid moved in, I was the first person to defend them. Have lunch with them. Lunch yeah, with yeah. them, whatever. If somebody was different and being made fun of, I felt like it, 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 I, I was going to jump in there. And it benefited the fact that I grew really big really quick. So, um, you know, I was the kind of guy that could stop fights before they start or get in somebody's face if I felt they were being mean. But um, I, I now look back and I think it was a real, even though I had some humiliating, painful moments in my childhood, yeah. I think that those were blessings because it taught me the power of compassion. And, you know, um, there's a great author uh, and thinker, Skip Gates, who wrote this wonderful book where he talks about luxuriating in his ethnic identity. In his case, it was blackness. But he said it was a portal for him to have a deeper understanding and connection to humanity. And all of us have some experience that defined us, whether it's our cultural upbringing or religious upbringing, but even more importantly than that, something that made us feel alone or isolated yeah. or, or hurt or different. Um, and I just think that that's gotta be fuel for us to be more compassionate uh, uh, and, and more open. I still remember um, when I was, got to college and I started working in a crisis hotline center. And it was wild to me to sit on a, a phone that people were calling about issues from eating disorders uh, to suicide. It was almost like the veil was lifted for me because the, the quantity of calls was so, so shocking to me. Yeah. And it really shook me to realize uh, that how much rape was common on the campus or sexual assault was, or it shook me to see how much people were stressed and depressed or worried, but it almost made me feel that we're all struggling with something. We're all going through hell. Yeah. And, uh, and I, then it also opened up to my eyes, my biases. I still remember, and I remember his name. I don't know where he is today, but Daniel Bao, like one of the more beautiful men, the people I've ever met, but he was the gay counselor. And I had so much ignorance from a 1970s and 80s upbringing yeah. in, a, in, a, in a massively hetero uh, sexist world. But the patience and the love with which he allowed me to ask dumb questions uh, um, and sort of opened up my heart and my compassion and helped me understand um, one of the biggest volumes of calls we got were kids struggling with their identity and coming Gender out. identity, yeah. yeah uh, and also suicides. Uh, uh, most Americans have no understanding that about 40% of our homeless youth are gay and lesbian youth who are coming from hostile environments. Uh, the biggest hate crimes in America are, are uh, gay and lesbian, uh, uh, bisexual, transgender kids uh, or, or people. And, and so, you know, all of us in America, we should be a lot kinder to each other and a lot more compassionate. And even if we have ignorance, I wish everybody from a place of love, or yeah. I wish everybody would have a Daniel Bow in their life uh, to like to to even though looking at me with my ignorances and my biases, and loved me through them and was willing to uh, uh, to be there for each other. And we we we've all got to. I wish we can all. I always say that the. It wouldn't be great in America if all of us had to work wait tables at some point in our lives. <laughs> that was so, that brought me some humble pie. It did. Some awareness. And oh, yeah. So I, I, I did a um, Heidi, Senator Heidi Hyde camp and um, uh, the other bald black man in the Senate, <laughs> Republican Tim Scott. The three of us teamed up because they're the pages that work in the Senate. And, you know, some people treat them like furniture uh, or like servants. 
And Heidi is one of these people that sets the example, it's like sets the, treats them kindly. So we decided to have a pizza party for them. And at the end, we just were giving them advice. And I said, I said to them, how many of you know how it felt when that senator was rude to you or treated you like you were help? Uh, uh, and you think about that for a second. They said, yeah. And I said, how many of you remember when the senator was nice to you and it like made your day? And I said, realize that you have that power as you go on in your life, that you're going to encounter people. And, and the question is, are you going to see them, see their beauty, see their divinity, and treat them as, uh, with that kind of love and respect? Or are you going to be that person that's rude? Uh, uh, and I said, that, that just attitude of kindness and attitude of gratitude, remembering what it feels like, that's going to take you so far in life. Just something, the basics like that. So I, I happened to marry that person. Really? Yeah, she opened my eyes in ways. And, and you know, I'd always historically been hard-charging type A person. When you come up against someone who's so soft like water yeah. and your sort of anger or frustration just rolls off them and they can show you love when you're not at your best. Yeah. I was like, wow. And that had been, that was a different, she was a very different kind of woman that I'd ever dated. And so my Daniel Bao happens to be my wife, Kate. So yeah. shout out to you, Kate. Hey folks, I want to inject another quick word from our sponsor, FreshBooks. I want to give a shout out to those guys. Reminder, FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software created specifically for creators, freelancers, and the self-employed folks like you and me. They just launched an all-new version designed from the ground up that is fantastic. A quick quick backstory, I once did for a whole year a paper ledger accounting and then did my own taxes, handwritten, without the help of an accountant or any software. It was horrible. I would never wish it on my worst enemy. And I just think about how much time and energy FreshBooks would have saved me in that year of my life. Uh, so simple to use. A couple of my favorite features. One is you can create an invoice in less than 30 seconds. Super, super easy. Another one is that, <laughs> this is related, you can see when your clients have actually viewed your invoice. So that removes that idea of, hey, I never saw your invoice. And then the last one, which is a, a big thing nowadays, is you can literally with two clicks accept online payments like credit cards, get those funds direct into your bank account so you can get paid faster. And importantly, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to anyone who listens to this show. In order to claim it, go to freshbooks.com slash chase. And where it says, how did you hear about us? Enter the Chase Jarvis show in that little slot there, and you will have access to that free trial. I think the, the arc that we're on right now, I want to interrupt for just a second and, and tie back to something that you said um, we're going to go back to creativity, but you said fight. You were big enough to break up fights. I think it was, it's interesting that the documentary that was made about you, it's, it's quite interesting, and it was called Street Fight. Yeah. And so for the filmmakers out there, I think, and this was in 2002 or three I think it came out in 2005. Five? It lost in the Academy Awards to March that. of the Penguins for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very humbling to me that the documentary I was in lost to these, you know, flightless rodents. <laughs> but um, again, you are an amazing orator. You're a great storyteller. Um, and I find it intriguing that someone made a film of you back in early political yeah, just life. Yeah, starting. Yeah, and then it, it lost in the Academy Awards, nominated and lost. Yeah. 
A, what was that like to be the subject of that? B, do you think it, it shared a piece of you with the, with the world that hadn't been seen before? Was it a catapult? Was it a hindrance? How, how do you look at that experience? Um, it, well, I mean, at that point in my life that it came out, um, I, I wasn't mayor. I was in this long eddy between losing a mayor's race painfully, as, yeah. the, as the movie says, and leading into a 2006 mayor's race that we eventually won. But, um, you know, it was a struggle, and Newark was... Um, going through a tough time at that period. And um, so in the many ways the film was, was it, 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 I always say, if you're gonna have a spectacular loss and failure in your life, have a documentary team there to <laughs> capture it because there's something redemptive yeah. in many ways about other people getting an insight into what was going on in that race. And it was, it's outrageous. I mean, most people who watch it say, I can't believe that kind of stuff goes on in America. Yeah. Um, but look, uh, one of the, uh, let me give you, tell you so just this just day before last there was a shooting in my neighborhood, and and um, it bothers me that we've become an, a nation that has normalized oh. stuff that if it went on 50, 60 years ago it would be literally leave the nightly news. Yeah. What we've now think is just part of American society that yeah. dozens of people will be murdered every day in gunfire. And they're often the people that live on the margins. I live in a, uh, I think I'm the only center that lives in a, a community that's below the poverty line. I think median income in my area is like $14,000 uh, per household. But it's an amazing community. I, this is where I first moved in when I was, came to Newark. I mean, heroes, champions. I mean, this is one of the places that is so special to me. But the problem is, is that folk aren't even woke to the fact that we have Americans struggling with the kind of issues that we're struggling with. Yeah. And so when, when you have a documentary or an artist that's able to pull some of that out and show America uh, that, that we, are, we are not who we say we are, yeah. that there are still levels of injustice uh, and, and unconscionable evil that goes on, and we have the power to stop it, um, um, and it's not their problem over there. Remember, yeah. it's our problem, yeah. we're in this together. There is no they. There is no they, yeah. it's us. Yeah. And, and so um, for me, a lot of what I'm trying to do, and this is the reason why I stay living in this neighborhood, because uh, you know, I love representing my state, but I have a bias in, 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 in all of my public life has been towards those people who are left behind, who are ignored, who are overlooked. And, and, and those of us, and I include myself, because as I said, I'm struggling, I'm not always yeah. perfect, when we indulge in the worst type of privilege, which is that there's a serious problem out there, and we know there's a serious problem out there, but it doesn't affect us or our family, so it's not that urgent of a problem. Yeah. And, and, and for us to get over that, find ways to get over that, um, is so critical, and this is where creativity in, in the love space is so yeah. important, is to be, how do we prick each other's compassion and sense of urgency. And I love this, you know, your, your folks should know this because you carry that spirit that I love and I think this is one of the reasons why conversations like this are so important. But I'm walking in here, you know, tomorrow I'm gonna be in a prison because again, my faith talks a lot about people in prisons and this is the greatest shame in America. And I'm, and I'm telling you, most Americans have no conception that we have 4% uh, or so of the, of the globe's population, but one out of every four imprisoned people on the planet Earth are in America. The highest level of incarceration in the history of, of humanity. humanity. Yeah, and we and who we incarcerate are the most vulnerable of our citizens. We basically said, let's let's design a system where the sick, mentally ill, addicted, and poor, where we can drive them further into 
uh, 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 into, into pain and misery. Let's design a system that preys upon uh, uh, minorities in, in, in such a way, I mean, there's no, you and I both, college scholarships and the like, and my school hates when I say this, but there's lots of drug use at Stanford, oh. you know? I mean, you could get your Adderall, you can get your X, you can yeah. get your pot, you can get your cocaine. I went to San Diego State. They were the number one party school okay. in the country. But there's, <laughs> and, and there's no sting operation <laughs> no. set up for nonviolent drug crimes. No. But, but, but it, 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 and so the difference of privilege, all of us, in fact, just by race alone, and by the way, there's African-Americans who are privileged who don't have this same experience, but if you were black in America, you were, there's no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs, no difference between blacks and whites for dealing drugs. In fact, young white men have a little higher rates, according to some studies, but if you're an African-American, you're almost four times more likely to be arrested for that problem um, um, and, 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 and for that for the so-called crime. And so you have guys that become president of the United States admitting to felony drug use. Obama and Bush didn't just try a little marijuana. Yeah. Serious felony crimes that you have teenagers in, in urban, poor, uh, communities that get ground into a system. Most people don't understand that you get arrested, a kid, go out to Rikers Island, you could spend months or years before you even get a trial in this country. That's scary. And you're, you're, you're then experiencing things inside that prison that other countries call torture, um, uh, juvenile solitary confinement. And then you're, you have the pressure. Most Americans think we still have trials and juries. No, 98% of our criminal convictions now are done by plea bargain because we've ratcheted up these mandatory minimums for nonviolent offenses that now, uh, this is, I've talked to so many kids where similar things happen. I'll try you in adult court, you'll face 40 years, or you can plea right now, guilty. I can get another guilty notch. Yeah. You come out now, and most people don't realize when you plead guilty, and this whole book On rate, your record. Oh. you cannot get Pell Grants, business licenses, uh, loans from your bank, public housing, food stamps, you're put into this black mark that stays with you for your life. Yeah. I've had people come to my office 20 years ago, a nonviolent drug crime, doing things that half of Congress and two of our last three presidents admitted to doing. Probably in the last week. <laughs> <laughs> it's been one of those weeks in Washington. There might have been a lot of smoking going on after this last, last week. Um, but for doing things that, that people joke about doing in their younger days, yeah. there are kids right now who've had their lives devastated. And I always tell the story of my high school Again, a, a good, solid community. Four of my friends on senior cut day tried to use fake IDs to buy alcohol. The place was closed, so they kicked open the back door, stole some beer, got caught. That's a felony, For breaking sure. and yeah, entering. Fathers got involved, you know, things were taken care of, and the right thing happened. Those kids were on, those young people are on doing great things, good people. The problem is, when it happens in a different community, yeah. you know, Brian Stevenson says we have a just, criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than poor and innocent. And people are being ground down. Mentally, health are, 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 are mentally ill are being made more, made more unhealthy. The drug addicted are not getting the services. We're trying to incarcerate ourselves out of an opioid addiction. Uh, uh, and, and the poor folks, we've criminalized poverty. So I, I go on that rant to say, you know, I'm going, I'm going to a prison tomorrow, okay. to a women's prison, because shackling pregnant women to beds to, while they're giving, like as if they're gonna run away, that this is their flight risk. The kind of stuff that's going on for, as a female population increases. And so where's the moral urgency in our country? Why is these things normalizing? And, and, and to me, that is a, about poverty, not, not poverty in terms of money or resources. It's a poverty of compassion, a poverty of, 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 of empathy, empathy, a positive, yeah. po po poverty of love at a time that we have reservoirs that we don't use of this. And so that's why documentaries, going back to how I got on this long tangent, and art in any form 
that can enlighten us, that can open up the floodgates of love, that can make us understand that we are in this together. And our country is based on this ideal. I always quote the end of the Declaration of Independence where they say, if this, if this country's gonna make it, because we're the, we're the, in fact, I was told this in Poland on my last trip when they bragged to me about, you know, Poland was formed, they, like 900 they say, but they wrote a constitution and they told me, I don't know if this is true, I haven't fact checked the Polish, um, but they were telling me that they're the second oldest constitutional democracy. Well, we're number one. This, that we're gonna form a country not based on what we look all alike, because we all have Polish ancestry, not because we speak the same language. We're gonna form a country on these amazing ideals. And our founders knew that that's a tenuous way to form a country. Yeah. And so we're gonna have to form this country and we're gonna have to make, they said, an unusual commitment to each other. We're gonna have to pledge, mutually pledge, this is the end of the Declaration of Independence, mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And that's where, where I wonder when we pledge allegiance to the flag, when we sing songs about our country, are we internalizing that and making that real every single day, pledging to other people? I mean, we are at the point now where we can't even be nice to each other if we find out you're a different political party. <laughs> I tell this story about Chris Christie. I was sitting there again, probably on my couch, eating. These are friends, but you disagree, right? Is that how it goes? Chris is my friend. I could write a dissertation <laughs> on my disagreements <laughs> okay. with him. But I'm the mayor of the largest city. He's the governor of the state. Our state needs us to work together. Yeah. And so I'm watching his Republican primary, and I, like, I was ready to scream at my, I think I had an afro, then I pulled all my hair out. <laughs> and I look at this, uh, I look at this as, a, as he gets lambasted by others for hugging Barack Obama. Now, when he hugged Barack Obama, it was at, after Hurricane Sandy had devastated our state. People died, billions of dollars of property damage. People lost their homes, all their possessions. Chris showed real emotion, like crying in these places. Obama flies in, our first one, to survey the damage. He comes down, the two of them hug. Now, I'm a hugger. That wasn't even a good hug. <laughs> it was yeah. one of those uncomfortable yeah. guy hugs. But it, we're lamb we've created a, an environment right now that just because you have a different political beliefs, we're so vilifying you that human contact now is being, we can't survive as a country if we can't love one another. We don't always have to agree. It doesn't mean I don't fight against your policies, but there's gotta be a core of love where I look at you and I see your divinity or, 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 or I see your worth. I see your importance to the larger cause of our country. Powerful medicine, again, that's, the, the power of art to unlock those stories, I think that's one of the things that, that I'm hoping to inspire people to take that as their media or as their medium for unlocking A, love, B, opportunity in this yeah. country. Um, I think it's, I look at creativity as the new literacy and there was a time prior to literacy where we, we you know, it was reserved for aristocracy and the wealthy and the clergy and, and then the Gutenberg Press came along yeah. and we realized that if we could educate our population and make them more literate that you had the infant mortality rate declining, you had the longevity uh, life. So how do, you, how do you exercise your creativity? Me, day to day? Yeah, like all, I, I think that it's, as we, you and I probably know, everything you gotta practice at it. Everything's yep. a practice, life is a practice. Sure. So how do you, what are like tips for well, me? First of all, creativity is not a skill, it's a habit. Right. And it is available for everyone. And I know you, you I've seen you take pictures. I think you and I took a selfie last yeah. time we were together. So um, the small act of creating every day unlocks creativity with the capital C. So brain surgeons that, are, that take pictures every day or play music, um, or cook are better brain surgeons based on neuroplasticity. And this is something that's available to everybody. We talked about the documentary filmmaker, but my goal with you know, my own life's mission with Creative Live is to unlock that creative potential 
in everyone. And the fact that it is available, it's the only, I think this is a Maya Angelou, it's the only natural resource that the more you use, the more you get. Right, that's awesome. So I expect the next time we talk, you'll, you'll tell me your creative practice. Do you so have any I, creative practice? Well, I want to confess to you something okay. that's like really, like, and I do it and I know my staff cringes, but. Um, uh, <laughs> They're over there right now. <laughs> They're like, oh no, well, this is coming. weird. Like, I do think it's, I think you're right, the better you, so I love writing poetry, I do, and it's bad poetry. Um, but I love writing it. And I think that something I've learned is if you, something sources you, like if I'm really yeah. emotionally stuck, I'll write a poem. And occasionally I'll post them online. And, you know, like maybe 10% of the comments is like, thank you for posting. Other people will just shellac me <laughs> for like, you're a politician. Why are you doing this? And, uh, you know, it's like I just think that the one often the fear about being creative yeah. is that you're taking a risk. You're exposing yourself, especially, I don't care what your form of creativity is, Great. but you're risking uh, 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 criticism, and I think that's often the thing that makes people feel constipated in their desire to continue the practice. For sure, there's a great for those folks at home who are identifying with what Corey's saying about risk. Uh, there's a great um, bit called it's the the versus the the man in the arena. It's yes. a Roosevelt quote um, by and Brene Brown helped me understand that. I don't know if you know Brene; she's an incredible thinker. And it's you should be critic. You, you should listen to criticism from only from other people who have put themselves in the arena, yeah. not from the it's people It's not who, the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or how the doer of deeds could have done better. It's the man actually in the arena, face marred with sweat, dirt, and blood. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful quote. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about hijacking your stuff. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Coming off the, turn sorry. <laughs> the top turnbuckle. I'm sorry. Bow. No, no, no. Superfly like, snuck it right I, on my neck. <laughs> Beautiful, thank you for grabbing that. Because I don't know it well enough, I know it just enough to be dangerous and to miss like every other word, but you just, that was beautiful. <laughs> um, no, that's good. So, uh, oh, that's great. But, but, but seriously, but that's like, yeah. even me, and I have to say, like, you know, I have this one poem I wrote, like, may your critics make you humble, may your haters make you wise, may you learn from every stumble, and when you fall, may you rise, rise, rise. And so I like, write poems that I want that, to, to remind me that like, in the job I'm in, and my staff is dealing with a situation now, like we get outrageous criticism from people who should be our friends, from yeah. the left, from the right, and, and you have to remind yourself every day, why are you doing this? Are you doing this for the applause and for people to stand up and say how great you are, or are you on a mission that's bigger than you are? And if you're on a mission bigger than you are, you can't let people snuff out your your energy, your desire to fight, your desire to keep being in it. And that's hard for me because I'm, I'm a big social media user and I see it all. And my staff is like, please put down it's, you know, the yep, Twitter. Yep. Or, or they'll, they'll preemptively say, you're gonna get a lot of criticism for X, yeah. but, but whatever. And it's just hard, it, it's a hard thing to get over. And this is something that I don't often talk about, but you know, I, I was terrified as a child and I say it's a child, it lasted well into my maybe early 30s is when I finally really turned a corner in speaking in front of people. And I, my most embarrassing childhood moment was the first political office I ever ran for, president of Harrington Park Elementary seventh grade class. Oh my God. And I literally Amazing. had this moment uh, where I froze in front of my class, including the, like, the, the, the girl I had a crush on and you know, and just couldn't get a word out. And I went home that night and I literally cried. And, and, and was so devastated by this uh, uh, embarrassing moment. And I was just uh, terror petrified and terrified. And, but I still swore at that moment, literally lying in a bowl on my uh, bed, that I would one day be a great speaker. And, and the, the thing that enabled me to do it, and, and, and my, 
some of the people who've been with me in politics since I, in my 20s still remember how like I would just sweat and fear sweat is like a stinky sweat <laughs> and and I like when I, I had to give a speech I would get I would just get nervous and 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 it just took me a while to get a long while to get over but it, it meant me getting up and throwing myself over the cliff I was afraid of again and again and again um, until I got to the point where I started to thrive off of the jump off of the leap um, um, and 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 so you know I just think that I could have been stifled in terms of my life, or I could now be, the gift that I've gotten from all that struggle is it's now one of my favorite ways to to communicate, to stand in front of a crowd and try to let, take my heart plug and, and plug it into the people who are there. You've, uh, you're an incredible orator. I didn't know that about you and your poetry. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I always ask. I can send you bad po poems anytime you want. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> take you up on it. Like like. Over there, staff's taking, <laughs> taps taking notes. Um, and that's one of the things about this show. I want someone to reveal something that they have not really revealed elsewhere. Um, so thank you for that gift. I'm trying to be mindful of our time, but I do have a couple areas I want to explore Please. really quick. And they're a little bit more about you than policy and, and the nebulous, like the, the out there, the, the, the big concepts. And that's personal things that you do on a daily basis to not just survive but thrive. How do you take care of yourself? Um, I'm advocating, you know, that we have a creative, a myth about creators that they, you know, it's, it's um, you have to throw all in and, and you, if you don't have a, a scary, hairy background, then you can't, you know, there's not stories that are worthy. And I believe in, in self-love and self-care and that's, you, know, you got to put your own oxygen mask on before helping other people. So what are some, just some simple things that you do to take care of yourself? Or do you have anything? Or, I mean, I have lots. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's a practice. So there are times I'm in it and yeah. there, when I feel incredibly effective and I feel yeah. like I'm channeling something that's not me. Yeah. But that's like proper sleep. It's like sleep, my uncle, Uncle Butch, I am Butch, tells me, <laughs> lecture me, sleep is a weapon, sleep is a weapon, sleep is a weapon. Um, but uh, finding a way to get proper sleep is like, it's a difference between me being effective and, and, and a, being able to summon good spirit and energy easily or have to struggle to be positive. We did talk about that before that we started recording too. That and this, I'm going to try. Your, sleep hack. I'm going to try your sleep hack. Okay, two tablespoons of apple cider yes. vinegar, one tablespoon of honey mixed with water in a cup, drink that before you go to sleep. I, we gotta, I should I report wanna, in. How, yeah, how, you should. Just yes. let me a note. I want to know tomorrow morning you wake up. And it's either going to be like it's on or nah. I, I want to give it like... I, like yeah, I do it a couple I'm times. I'm a vegan now sure. because I did... Uh, you know, I love Gandhi's autobiography, My Experiments with Truth. You know, I decided three months I was going to try being a vegetarian. And, it's, and I was a competitive athlete at the time. Transformed me, workouts, everything like that. So I'm going to give this a little time. Okay. Sweet. But sleep, uh, exercise, meditation, if I can get those three things in. And then I have to say, I learned from uh, the podcast. We were talking about Tim the other day. This is why I like the two, one of you two together lecturing me about sleep hacks. <laughs> and meditation. I wasn't going to get Tim to meditate first. Did you really? Yeah, me and Rick Rubin, the music producer, yes. hitting him from both sides. Like, dude, you got to do this. It's going to unlock you. And for hard-charging type A people, you think that your edge comes from your aggro nature, and then you realize after meditation that that thing that you thought was your catapult. So this is something anger. I don't think I've ever shared publicly, but my aha moment from, from that I got from meditating, and I started um, when I was coming out of uh, England, going into law school, and I, I sought out this uh, Buddhist teacher to teach me to meditate, and I didn't realize that my emotional states were the product of my thoughts. It was like a really interesting aha moment, and that I control, could control my thoughts. Yes. And that was the thing, that my thoughts weren't me, 
And then I had records that I would play over and over again. And if I could pull myself out and know to just be a witness, it gave me so much more power over my emotional states. And it was an awakening I had in law school, it's not, not in any of my legal classes, but, <laughs> but literally sitting with this Buddhist uh, teacher. That it, it was a, this shift of consciousness that I had about how, so much more control. And that's why I love quotes like uh, uh, Viktor Frankl's book, A Man's Search for Meaning. Powerful book, yes. Unbelievable. And, and this one I used to be able to quote directly, but it, paraphrasing him, he said, you know, we who are in the concentration camps remember those people who shared their only piece of bread, even though they themselves were starving, comforted others, even though they themselves were suffering the same uh, uh, circumstances. It's a testimony of the greatest of all human uh, uh, freedoms, the ability to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances. And that's why when you, on, on, I've listened to you talk a lot, it's beautiful, it's like, it's, it's poetry to me uh, when you talk about gratitude. And I think you have, for those of you who have not listened to you speak about gratitude, about it's a choice. And so that, that it was the power of meditation for me, is that realizing that, and, and it also reminding me and I, I, I'll remember this at times, that just breathe. And somehow then I'm able to witness my emotional state and, and realize that that's not who I am. I'm not that emotional state. I'm something larger, bigger, that's reflected by all the people around me. And it's also helped me when somebody is like making me want to punch them. <laughs> and I'm a there very peaceful guy. Yeah. But um, you know, the body slamming of reporters seems to be in. Oh, <laughs> um, my gosh. But, but to all of a sudden, uh, you know, just breathe, and then and then it helps me to see the divinity in who and who, who, whoever I'm I'm around. It's such a simple thing, and then it's so profound. Yes, you talked about state. Um, Tony Robbins does a great job of, I think, organizing this. You can't get to the strategy if you're not in a good state. There's a very simple, very linear connection between you have to be in a great state to be able to tell yourself the right story. Right. And that's the only way you'll be able to access the right strategy. If you try and go right to the strategy, but you're in a bad headspace, strategy's not gonna be effective. And the thing is, I've heard you say this, and I struggle with this decision in the morning, because you're like, don't check your, I think you might have bleeped yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, um, you're good, Sandra, you're good. <laughs> um, um, but you know, checking your email. So that's really, I literally have these, this feeling when I get up in the morning, so my, if I'm in DC, I'll, I'll get up, I have a bike literally in my basement now, so I like going to the Senate gym because I can socialize with senators across the aisle, but my ideal morning is get up, I learned this from Tim Ferriss, make my bed. Yes. Um, um, I just never realized the power of that. My mom wished I'd learned this lesson <laughs> decades ago because she would lecture Thanks, me mom. about it. That's why my mom has this saying, behind every successful child is an astonished parent <laughs> because my mom can't believe, this is the guy I couldn't get to make his bed to mow the lawn, <laughs> senator. <laughs> um, but um, you know, make my bed, work out, meditate. But then there comes that choice: tune into my electronics, flip on the news, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'd much rather listen to a podcast from you on being I, something that sources my soul or my spirit or instructs me, or to tap into the news of the day. Go, go right, and, and that's always a because then my state often gets drawn yeah. right in. You're, yeah, you, you're not deciding what your state is yeah. if you're not prepared before you go in. Yeah. Senator Booker, thank you so much. I'm enjoying this guy. I keep for forgetting time. the cameras that are there, which, and that's dangerous. <laughs> that's good. No, that's good. Um, um, I want to say thank you for all no, that you've you, done. Th thank you, and and you should know you're living that life that of of how love leaps time and space. I mean, you're making influences on people's lives because I don't care who you are, and I know, I, and I love the fact that your audience is left, right, all over, but we're all Americans, and I know you have people outside of this country. Sure. But when you help people live life at a, at a, at a higher frequency, be who they want to be, as, as as, it has a ripple effect. So thank you for being an agent of change and an agent of love, uh, and I feel grateful for you.
I feel grateful for you. Thank you, man. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.